Good morning, everyone. This time has become my favorite time of the service. Love the worship. I obviously enjoy preaching, but I love to hear everyone talking to everyone another as to each other. As we've said, if you come to church and just sit here and listen to me, but don't actually get to know people, you are missing like ninety percent of what it means to be a part of the church. Maybe maybe bring volume down a little bit. <laughs> there we go. So please take advantage of that time. Make some fridge friends, get to know people. Please take advantage of that. In that regards, I, I have a little bit more info to pass along to you all. Karen Barber said that she is still in process of waiting about some tests and her learning about her, her hearing and all of that and the cochlear implant. And so she just asked me to pass that along to you during that break, that she very much appreciates your prayers and asks that we would continue to pray for her and to pray with her as we wait for hopefully the Lord to do a miracle, either through modeled medicine or through the power of his spirit. So we will work uh, and, and pray with her to that end. Now, in regards to where we're going this morning, I want to give you kind of the road map. Last week, we were in Romans 12. We've been in Romans for a long time now. I've, I got some pretty good feedback from, from last week's message. I got some also um, concerns about last week's message a little bit as well. And I will say, I love this church family. You all are so gracious. Even if you have questions or concerns, you're just incredibly gracious. So thank you for being gracious. Now that said, uh, one lady in particular came up after service. She said, that was awesome. I think we might need a part two think we might need a part two. And that kind of just stuck with me. And so I was praying about it. It's like, well, maybe we'll revisit Romans 12. But also, today is Palm Sunday. And so here's what I want to do. I want to I go back to Romans 12, but we're going to do that via Palm Sunday. So today's big idea is this. Follow in Jesus' footsteps. Love good. Last week, we talked about love good. Love like Jesus. This morning, follow in Jesus' footsteps. Love good. Good. And so we're going to look at a little bit of Palm Sunday stuff and then work our way into Romans 12 and clean up and clarify a few things from last week. So if you have your Bibles, open them with me to Luke chapter 19. We will be reading starting in verse 28 in your header. If you got the NIV, the ESV, it says something about Jesus's triumphant entry. It says this, Luke 19 verse 28. After Jesus had said this, He went up on ahead, going to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And he went along, as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. 
If you've grown up in church, you will know, again, that today is Palm Sunday, and today is the day that we read a text just like this, about Jesus' triumphant entry to the praise of the crowd into Jerusalem. It's an important part of the Easter history. And I just want to highlight a few things that are striking to me as I read this passage, and hopefully you'll see why they're striking. Firstly, this passage reveals to us that Jesus is and was God. Jesus knew things that were impossible to know, and he commanded authority in a way that no ordinary human ever could. As we read through this, you might have thought this thing about the cult is kind of odd or bizarre. It's striking, is it not? Jesus knows not only where to find the cult, he sends the disciples after him, presumably having never seen this thing or been there or known. He just knows because he's God, and so he sends his disciples And it's exactly where he said it would be. He also anticipates that the owners might object to random strangers stealing their animal. Now, that's not very godlike, right? We all could kind of jump to that conclusion. You're going to go take something that's not yours. People might get a little little sassy in regards to that. Jesus anticipates that. That's not that striking. What is striking is what he tells them and the fact that it works, right? He says, people are going to ask you, hey, why are you stealing my animal? Just tell them the Lord needs it. Now, let me encourage you, right? You go into Walmart this week, you see one of those fancy new smokers in the back, you wheel it out without paying for it, the security guard stops you and is like, hey, what's up? It's like, don't worry about it, the Lord needs it. That's not going to work. It's not going to work. Why? Because you're not God and you're not Jesus. Also, I'm not a big animal guy. I'm not a big pet guy. I like the idea of pets. I don't like actually having pets. I don't know much about animals. I don't know much about horses or donkeys, but the The fact that no one has ever ridden this animal seems striking to me as well. Again, I don't know much about horses. The findings can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure if no one's ever ridden a horse or a donkey or a colt, that they need to be broken before anybody can sit on them and have a decent time of things, right? Pretty sure horses and donkeys, they're either really stubborn or they lose their mind and buck like crazy unless you break and train that animal. Unless, of course, if the God of the universe and your creator sits on your back and then you quit all that and you quit the stubbornness and you just listen and obey, which is precisely what happens. Now, these things are striking, but they don't seal the deal for me as to Jesus' identity, being the king of the universe. This is not what seals the deal for me. What seals the deal for me is not even the fact that the crowds praise him, right? Crowds are fickle, as we'll see throughout the Easter story. They're praising him three days earlier, and the next day they're calling for him to be crucified. They're fickle. Now that said, I can't read this passage without referencing the passage that Seth read to us earlier. 500 years earlier, the prophet Zechariah tells us that this is exactly what is going to happen. Zechariah 9.9 tells us, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, gentle and lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. We're told 500 years earlier that this is exactly what's going to happen, and it does. Jesus fulfills the prophecy. Now, this alone does not seal the deal for me either as to Christ's identity. All right, crowds are fickle. They don't truly understand who Jesus is, but Jesus is not confused as to who he is. Not at all. See, how do you know that? 
because of Jesus' response to the crowds and the religious leaders. He receives their worship. He receives worship not just as a special earthly person, but as God in the flesh, the Messiah, the King of heaven. He receives worship as God's very own son. You say, Levi, how do you know that? The crowds didn't understand. They thought he was a political leader. That's why they're worshiping. Yes, but the religious leaders are on to him. The Pharisees of the time, the people who know the scriptures, they understand what the crowds are saying and they understand what Jesus is doing. The Pharisees see what is happening and they rebuke him. Why? Because he's receiving worship as being God. They tell him, silence your disciples, silence the crowds who are worshiping you. This is blasphemy. This is wrong. This is sinful. Tell them to be quiet. But Jesus reveals he knows who he is in his response. He says, if these people are silent, if I tell them to be quiet, I tell you the truth that I will give voice to these rocks and they will praise me for being the king and God of the universe. Folks, I need you to understand the weight of what Jesus is saying. Rome at this time in history is a political powder keg, right? It is, you could cut a, Cut, cut the tension with a knife, politically speaking. The Jewish people hate being under the authority of Rome. They hate it. There's zealots, there's terrorists that are taking arms. Other people have come in the history, in the past, and claimed to be Messiah as well. In fact, there's another guy, if you read back far enough in history, 400 years or so, 200 years or so, a guy who knew the prophecy about Zechariah, and he too rides into the, into the city on a colt and leads a Jewish revolution and throws over the, the empire at the time, and there's a big revolt, and eventually the empire at the time crushes it. They regain power. That's this history. And so the Jews are always looking for a Messiah. The Romans are trying to crush any dissent. The Roman peace, the Pax Romana, they keep the peace with an iron rod, with violence. That's what Jesus is walking into riding into the epicenter of political and religious strife, receiving praise as king and accepting it. And he tells the people, he tells the religious leaders and any Roman soldiers close enough in proximity to hear, if I, don't t- if I tell these people to be quiet, then the very rocks will cry out, I am he, I am God, I am Messiah. Does this sound like a man who doesn't know who he is? I don't think so. Jesus knows who he was. He knows who he is. He is the God who can give voice to rocks. You say, Levi, how do you know that? I know that because we're going to celebrate the historical fact of Easter next week. That not only can he give voice to rocks, he can empty the grave. He can and he does. He gives life to dead men. This statement here clues us into the identity of Jesus. He claimed to be God. He did things only God can do, like foretell the future, like command storms, like ride unbroken animals. He accepted worship as God, and if he silenced the crowd, then he says, I will give voice to these rocks. And then if you would keep reading in Luke, we would discover that as he enters the city of Jerusalem, he weeps. He weeps, and the text tells us that he weeps because the city of Jerusalem does not understand that God has arrived in their presence, and he has come to give them peace. 
He then goes into his temple, his home, and with authority, he drives out the money changers. And he says, you have turned my house, my father's house, into a den of robbers and thieves. This, friends, is Jesus Christ. His love was sincere. He hated what God declared to be evil, as we read last week in Romans 12, and he loved what God declared to be good. He was and is God. He deserved for even the stones of the earth to worship him, but he was delivered over to the hands of sinful people. He was beaten, mocked, and hung on a cross. He deserved worship. He deserves worship. He deserved honor. He deserves honor. But instead, we killed him. And how did he respond? He responded like we're, respond, we're commanded to respond in Romans 12. Rather than demanding loyalty, Jesus was devoted to us sacrificially through love. He never lost his spiritual fervor. He served the Lord to the point of giving up his very own life. He was joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Instead of cursing those who cursed him and hung him on a tree, he blessed them from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Even though the rocks knew who he was and were eager to declare his praises, he was not proud. He was willing to associate with people of low position. He was counted among the tax collectors, thieves, the poor and prostitutes. He was said to be a friend of sinners. And Jesus did not retaliate when spat upon. When beaten and mocked, he did not seek revenge. But instead, he committed himself and his spirit into the hands of his Father. And on that cross, with his final breath, he overcame evil with the greatest good by laying down his life and announcing to the world to the spiritual realm of heaven, hell, and Hades. It is finished. He lived Romans 12 perfectly, and we killed him for it. And because he refused to be conformed to the patterns of this world, but rather chose to make his life a living sacrifice for God, he gave up his very life. Because of that, God exalted him to the highest place, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will eventually confess that he is Lord forever to be praised. And church, that is precisely what we are going to celebrate next week. He laid down his life. No one took it from him. He laid it down and he took it back up three days later, conquering sin, death, and the devil forever. But that's next week. This morning... I want to circle around back to Romans 12 with you again and give you part two of that message. I said some hard things last week. I knew I was going to say some hard things. I prayed about saying those hard things, and then I said those hard things, and they were hard to hear, <laughs> right? We talked about what it looks like to love sincerely, about how that means that our love must correspond to the will of God, meaning that we must love in truth, that we must love the good and hate the evil, just like Jesus did for us. 
And I spoke about what that looks like in culture when I talked about human sexuality and marriage. That we must be a voice as Christians of sanity that points people to our good and loving God, to God's good and beautiful design for marriage between one man and one woman and how he made them and called them good, both male and female. We uphold that goodness and call people to God's good design in our culture with love and with compassion, but also with conviction, sincerity, truth. I spoke also of how as parents we're called to discipline our children if our love is to be sincere. We must stand up for what is evil and cling to what is good in our parenting. More specifically, I said you should spank your kids. And then I gave you these four verses for your reflection and your research. I realized what I said in regards to both of these issues on human sexuality and on parenting are not popular. I know they're not popular. But it's what God says, folks. And I want to remind you that as Jesus rode into the praise of the crowd, he was not doing that because he thought it was popular. Jesus lived for one voice, his father's. He said what he heard, he said what he knew, his father wanted him to say, regardless of whether it was popular or not. And eventually, we killed him for it. He didn't stand for what the crowd stood for. He didn't stand for what empires stood for. He stood upon God's truth. He proclaimed it. And he loved us sincerely by doing so. And that said, I do want to offer a little bit of clarification beyond what I was able to offer based on what I said last week. I stand by what I said because I believe it's what God says. But I want to, I want to clarify things a little bit more this morning. These four verses that are up on the screen, they command us to discipline our children. Hebrews specifically implies that if you love your kids, you will discipline them. That's an evidence of love. And then Proverbs, the three verses from Proverbs that I've given to you, they give us some wisdom on, on what that discipline could look like. It recommends spanking as wise and useful tool for correction and training in the Lord. But here's what I need you to know. First, for those who have been abused by parents or guardians, the Lord God of heaven hates that. That is evil and sinful. Jesus loved the little children, and he gave the severest of words for anyone who would lead them astray or abuse them. Do you know what he said to people that would abuse children, that would lead his children astray? He said, it would be better for you to tie a rope around your neck and tie the other end of that rope to a boulder and then throw that boulder into the ocean so that it drags you down to the bottom. It would be better for you to do that than for you to hurt or abuse or lead astray one of my little ones. God hates abuse. He does not condone it, neither do I or the leaders here at Crossroads Church. Abuse is wrong and sinful, and that is not what God wants or what this church wants. Friend, if you have anger issues, if you are unable to control yourself in your anger as a parent, then spanking should not even be the closest thing to the forefront of your mind. Shouldn't even be on the table. So firstly, God hates abuse and wants you to know that if you were abused as a child, 
that was not, is not his desire for you or for any of his kids. So when I recommend spanking to you as a valid and biblical form of discipline, I need you to know that abuse is not what I had in mind. That is absolutely not what God suggests. It's also not a salvation issue. It's not a salvation issue. I do think spanking correctly, which I will outline for you briefly in a minute, is biblical, but I do not think it's necessary to discipline your children well. Discipline is the non-negotiable here. In the Old Testament, and what I'm going to offer up to you, again, is a hard thing, but I, I bring it up to point out to you that disciplining our children is the utmost importance for the Lord. In the Old Testament, if there was a particularly rebellious child who time and time and time and time again refused to repent and come under his parents' discipline and authority and was stubborn and persisted in his rebelliousness, God said, you can stone that kid. Stone them. Do you know why that is? I'm not suggesting that we do this. I'm just saying this is in the scriptures. Why? Because God knows that if children do not live to learn to live under their earthly authority of their parents, then they will never learn to live under his heavenly authority as God, and their rebellion will infect and effect the entire society as a whole. I'm sure you all remember the recent rioting that's happened over the last couple years. The rioting at the Capitol, the rioting over race, liberals, Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, everybody's rioting, right? We've all remembered that. That, my friend, is what failed parenting looks like. A generation of children who have grown up entitled and have never learned to submit to the authorities that God has established in this world for our protection and the curtailment of sin and evil. Parents, it is your God-given responsibility to discipline your children. It is not the state's job It is not the job of the school system. It's not even the job of this church. This is your job. And you should discipline in love, never in anger. You don't have to spank to discipline well. But you are responsible to discipline. And I do believe that the Bible presents spanking as a wise tool to use. Now, if you choose to use it, here's what it could look like for you. This is what it looks like in my house. It's not punishment. It's loving discipline and correction. The child needs to understand how they've stepped out from under my loving authority. So we spank in my house for the three D's of discipline. This actually comes from Matt and Lanita. The three D's of discipline. Dishonesty, disobedience, and disrespect. We don't do it with our hands. I don't want my kids to fear my touch. We have a spatula in the kitchen drawer that we use. We do that for one reason. I I don't want them to fear my touch, but I also want the time that it takes to go walk to that drawer and to get it out for me to cool down, to maybe pray and talk to the Lord, think about what correction I need to offer. I get the spatula out. I bring one of my children over, have them stand by the counter, and I ask them, you're about to get a spanking. Do you know why? Church, they always know why. I told a lie. I was dishonest. I was disobedient. I didn't do what you told me I should do. I was really disrespectful. I did something that was disrespectful. I said, yeah, that's right. That's right. We talk it over. 
and then I give them a paddle, or my wife gives them a paddle. It's hard enough to sting, but not hard enough to leave a mark once or twice, and then it's over. And then I get down on their level, I look them in the eye, and I tell them, I'm doing this because I love you, because the Lord tells us that he disciplines those he loves, and I need you to know that what you did was wrong, but it's paid for, it's done. And I also need you to know that regardless of anything that you do, good, bad, or ugly, your mother and I, our love for you will never change. And then I give them a hug, and then they're on their way, and that's it. It's over. Again, this is not the only way to discipline, but I do believe it is biblical, and it is wise. Along with that, I also recognize that I don't know your kids. You know them better than I do, and so you know how to discipline them better than I do. My middle daughter, if I look at her crossways, that's enough. I think, I don't know if I've paddled her once, maybe. She just doesn't need it. My youngest sister got more defiant when she got a spanking. It didn't work, right? So they they had to take toys away or take TV time away. It's not the only form of discipline. The non-negotiable, though, parents, is that you do discipline, that there is a swift and stern consequence for dishonesty, disrespect, and disobedience. Do not neglect this responsibility. Love your children sincerely. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Now, there's one more section in Romans that I didn't get to spend enough time on last week. And it comes from the, the last part, Romans 12, 17. Romans 12, 17. Do not repay anyone for evil, evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And my question when I read this is, how in the world do you live in this manner when someone does something just so blatantly evil against you? How do we just give it to God, forget, forgive, and bless rather than curse? Firstly, here's what God is asking us for and what he's not asking us for. God is not asking us to necessarily forget the offense. Why? Because you can't. You can't forget. We can't rewrite history, and it would be a lie to pretend like something evil that happened to us never happened. God is not asking us to forget. Forgiveness is not forgetting. And forgiveness doesn't always restore the friendship, right? We just read, and as much as it depends upon you, live at peace with all people. Forgiveness is not forgetting, and it's also not about necessarily restoring the friendship. You can't control the person's response. Forgiveness is about your response, not the other person's. But it is a command to the Christian. This is not an option you can choose to follow or not. God expects that you will not retaliate and that you will forgive when you're offended. Church, your freedom depends upon this, and so does the evidential proof of your salvation. Saved people... Forgiven people, forgive others. That's what you do, because that's what Jesus has done for you. And that still leaves us with the question, how? How do I forgive? How do I not retaliate? 
when something truly evil is done to me? I'm going to give you six steps this morning. Step one, go to Jesus in prayer. This step assumes that you know Christ and that you know him as more than just a figure of history, that you know him more than you just than you know that George Washington was the president of the United States. Go to Jesus in prayer. That assumes that you have a relationship with him, that you know his character because you spent time in his word. You know his voice, what he sounds like, the kinds of things that he might say to you. You know him enough where you talk to him and you expect that he will talk back to you and does talk back to you through his spirit, through his word, and through the wise counsel of his church community. Go to Jesus in prayer, step one, and tell him what? Tell him what happened and how it made you feel. Now, personally, I have to journal. It's just I found over the years that unless I journal out my thoughts and feelings, I don't feel like I've expressed, expressed them or like Jesus heard me. I journal. You don't have to journal, but figure out however you connect with the Lord and do that. Go to Jesus, tell him what happened, and tell him how you feel about it. The good, the bad, the ugly, and especially the really, really ugly. Tell him. Vent to him about it. And then, don't stop there. Ask him to tell you or show you how he feels about it. And then listen. How many times do we stop and and listen? Listen. Our God is alive. He is not dead in the grave. He still speaks today. Listen. Lord, here's what happened. Here's how I feel about it. All the ugly feelings, everything. What do you have to say to me in regards to this? Then listen. Listen to that still, small voice in your head, in your heart. Listen to what you hear in your mind. And then test it. Test it against what he's already said in the Bible. What you already know about the character of God. Are there thoughts coming into your head that are forceful? That are venomous? That are condemning or fear-inducing? Do the thoughts that run into your head and your heart, do they tell you, boy, you ought to get even? That's not the voice of God. But if the voice you hear, if the thoughts that pop into your head are compassionate, loving, merciful, full of grace and truth, I hate what happened to you. That's horrible. I hate that. But I still love you. If that's the voice you hear, chances are you're hearing from the Lord of heaven. You can always take what you hear, write it down, and share it with others. Friends that you know, know Jesus, know his word. Tell them what you heard. Ask them to test and discern it with you. The point is, talk to Jesus about it, and then give yourself some space to listen to what he might say. Step two, after you name the offense and have talked to God about it, commit to release your right to get even. I said last week that forgiveness is like turning someone over to God's debt collection agency, right? When someone sins against us, it's like they take out a loan from our life, and now they owe us a debt. And naturally, we all want to be the repo man. We all want to go take what they took from us and get it back, and give what they gave to us and give it to them. In forgiveness, we are making the commitment to to take off the repo man hat and to give that to the Lord. We name the offense. Here's what happened. Here's what it hurt me. Step two, we give that debt to the Lord and King of heaven. 
Here's what happened, Jesus. Here's how it hurt me. Here's what I feel like I'm owed. I'm turning that to you. You collect this debt. Either on the cross, through the forgiveness that you pay out, or in the final judgment. I don't care, but I'm entrusting this debt and this person into your hands. I'm freeing myself from them, from the bitterness, from the resentment that I hold. I renounce it, and I hand it over to you. They're in your hands now, Lord. Step three. Repeat steps one and two as the hurt resurfaces in your life. Step four. Pray blessing. In your heart, in your head, when you're alone in your car, pray out loud. Pray blessing over the one who's offended and sinned against you. Church, I have found that in my life, it is very hard to harbor bitterness and resentment against people that I am praying for God to bless. It may sound like something like this. Lord Jesus, here's what they did. Here's how it still hurts. I renounce my resentment. I give it to you. Now, I'm asking that you'd bless this person. Would you bless their family? Lord Jesus, would you help them know you? Would you give them joy in walking with you? Would you comfort them? Would you give them your peace? I pray that today they would know and be filled with the bright joy of your presence. Pray blessing over them, not cursing. Step five, repeat steps one through four as the hurt resurfaces, because it will. Step six, rest in the justice of God. Friend, the God of heaven is a God of justice. To satisfy justice, he was willing to give up his one and only son. Jesus sacrificed himself to satisfy his justice and his love. However evil the evil that was done to you, God saw it. He saw it. He sees it. And he will have his justice. Again, either upon the cross, where your evil and your sins were paid for, or in the finer, final judgment. Folks, bitterness is the poison you take hoping that someone else will drop dead. Release it to the God of justice and love. Rest in his love and his justice. As Roman tell, Romans 12 tells us, don't repay evil for evil. Do not be overcome by it. Rather, Follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Love good. Jesus was God. He deserved the praise and worship of the crowds, but he chose to hate evil and cling to good rather than seek their, their approval. And in doing so, the crowds turned on him and killed him. But don't be mistaken. They did not take his life. No one could ever take the life of God. He gave it up for love so as not to be overcome by evil. And in doing so, he overcame evil with an incredible good. Let's seek to follow in his footsteps, shall we? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for the sincerity with which you love us. That you did not tell us what our itching ears want to hear. That you did not seek to be popular but you told us what we need to know, the truth of the Father. You hated what was evil in an incredibly compassionate and winsome way, 
and you loved us good. I pray that you would empower each and every one of us never to be offended by your word, convicted maybe, neither let allow us to be condemned, Lord Jesus, but let us stand upon the finished work of Christ with soft hearts, eager to hear, to receive your word in truth, to embrace it, to conform our lives to it, and receive the good and joy that flows out of living under your authority. When we're offended, Lord, when we're sinned against, empower us not to conform to the patterns of this world, but to live different, to live as a living sacrifice, to love good in the same manner that Jesus loves us. Use our lives, Lord, to be a living sacrifice and testimony, to proclaim to this lost and broken world of your love and your goodness. Pray this all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship our King together.